think Skull and Bones is the oldest and most important secret college club of the American power elite? Well, it's definitely not the oldest, and uh, it may not be the most important. There's another club that's many decades older, usually dated to the 1790s, uh, most often 1791, as opposed to Skull and Bones, founded in 1832. And this club, according to some, may be even more powerful and prestigious and important than Skull and Bones. This club, by the way, is also older than the British clubs, such as the Pitt Club at Cambridge University and the Gridiron Club at Oxford. The club I'm speaking about is, of course, the Porcillion Club, and it's generally known as the most prestigious of the so-called final clubs at Harvard University. Its membership includes everything, everyone, from war heroes to literary figures and intellectuals to political figures, including Supreme Court justices, one president of the United States, and their roster even includes the notorious Winklevoss twins. By the way, if you'll recall, if you've seen it in the movie The Social Network, which I've not seen since it first came out, Mark Zuckerberg, as depicted in that movie, is very unhappy and disappointed about not getting into the Porcillion Club. However, I should also point out that in my research for this episode, I found different sources that said different things about the accuracy of how things were portrayed in that film. One article I read even claimed that Natalie Portman, who of course is a Harvard alumnus, was the source for some of the information about the Porcillion Club. But I found other articles that were disputing some of the exact details of how the club was portrayed in the film, and also some dispute over whether or not in real life Zuckerberg was as concerned with getting into the Porcelain Club and as disappointed by not getting in as he was depicted to be in the movie, so I don't know what the truth is there. Not terribly important, just kind of an interesting little side note. Now, unlike Skull and Bones, as far as we know, the Porcelain Club is not quite as out there in terms of the wilder occult trappings and rituals and things like that. It seems to be, again, from what we know, it's possible there's things that we just don't know. It seems to be that their overall, the Porcelain Club, compared to Skull and Bones, is just a bit more low-key, less flamboyant, and so on. And that's perhaps a big part of why it's so much less notorious among the general public. There's a lot of things about Skull and Bones that are different and that just make for good Hollywood depictions and make for good urban legends and so on. But as far as I know, the Porcelain Club does not have its own private island like Skull and Bones does. By the way, if you're interested, it's called Deer Island, and it's on the St. Lawrence River between, I believe, upstate New York and Canada. Now, whether or not this low profile of the Porcelain Club is a deliberate thing, you know, deliberately for camouflage sake or not, whether it's something that just has happened by accident that they have a lower profile. Either way, the public knows much less about the Porcelain Club and what it does behind closed doors than it does about Skull and Bones, as secretive as Skull and Bones is. Now, it could be that the Porcelain Club simply doesn't do as much wild out their stuff as Skull and Bones, or it could, again, be that they're just better at keeping their secret club, well, a secret. Over time, the membership roster of the club has become slightly more democratic than in the past. It's no longer quite as 
monolithically upper-class, old-money, blue-blood wasps, no longer quite as overwhelmingly tilted towards the so-called Boston Brahmin families, like the, the Adamses and the, the Lodges and so on. But that said, it still to this day is mostly that. It still certainly is not even representative of Harvard's general population, let alone of American society as a whole. And it's true that the occasional talented person from humble origins may get in and gets in seemingly at higher rates than in generations past. Still, when you look at the types of people who get in and you look at what people have said about the selection process and so on, factors like where you attended school previously, you know, where you went for grade school and your family lineage and so forth seem to still matter a heck of a lot. This club, by the way, only admitted its first black member in the 1980s. And if I remember right, I think it was a black guy who had gone to like the super elite private boarding schools. I don't remember which one, you know, schools like Phillips Andover Academy and those sorts of things. So even when they finally, finally let in a black guy, it wasn't exactly like he was from a humble background or anything like that. It was a black guy who had gone to the blue-blooded boarding schools and so on. And the club still does not admit women, which some of the finals clubs at the Ivy League universities do now admit women, and some of them stay male only. Interestingly, and perhaps somewhat predictably, a lot of recent articles about the Porcelian Club really fixate on the whole male-only thing, like that's the big deal about it. But the reality is, this is a private club. It is not part of Harvard College in any kind of official or institutional capacity. And isn't it kind of, in a way, weird but typical and predictable that people look at this secretive club of the power elite and then all they really care about is if women can get in or not? As if letting women into some of these clubs of the power elite that they're not yet in and then letting women get even more involved in being part of the power elite that exploits us all would somehow make that exploitation more acceptable. And I believe entirely in freedom of association. And so, I don't have a problem with any private club that is based on voluntary principles and that nobody is forced to fund against their preferences or anything like that. A truly private voluntary club or association of any sort, I don't really care what their membership criterias are or aren't. I think it's their business. I don't think anybody should be forced to associate with someone they don't want to. So my problem with this club is not that it's secretive, not that it's private, and not so much that it's elite and unrepresentative, because again, I don't have a problem with any sort of private voluntary association defining its membership however they want. The reason that I care about this at all, and that I find it kind of troubling, and this would also apply to Skull and Bones and a lot of these other groups as well, is that these are often the people who are the Blue Bloods who are earmarked for positions of power within various realms of the power elite. And so that's why I think it matters who these people are, what their connections are, and, if possible, trying to figure out what they're up to. And I'm sure these, these clubs, which are sort of like fraternities, but not exactly, and they have a different relationship with the college itself than a typical you know, Greek letter fraternity does, I'm sure a lot of what these groups engage in isn't much different from typical frat behavior as far as parties and 
that sort of stuff and screwing around. But the fact of the matter is, a lot of these people are those who will later grow up to be in positions of significant power in the state or corporate worlds or what have you. So that's why I think it matters in a way that a bunch of wealthy, eccentric people who are not involved in the power elite and don't have any plans to get involved in the power elite, if they have a private club and they're doing weird stuff and whatever, like, eh, it's kind of amusing, but it's not really, to me at least, it's not really a troubling thing. But when it's people who are, in many cases, the future personnel of the power elite, it's a little bit more concerning. Anyway. In this episode, I'm going to share with you more of what I've been able to dig up about this elite club. I wish I had more to share. There's a lot less that you can uncover about the Porcelian Club than about something like Skull and Bones. But I've made my peace with that fact, and this episode is going to be more about tacitly raising questions than about answering them. But before I jump more into the meat of the story of the Porcelian Club... I have some administrative things to go over, some announcements and thank yous and things like that. First, as always, the Patreon shoutouts for new people who have signed up to support the Dangerous History podcast via Patreon since the last episode I produced. And I have to thank the following awesome individuals. Thanks to Mike, to Petter, to Rick, to Joseph, Eric, and Randy. Thank all of you very much for stepping up to help support the Dangerous History Podcast over at patreon.com slash profcj. And just as a reminder to all of you listening, if you sign up to support the show at Patreon for at least $1 per episode, and more is certainly welcome, but for just a dollar per episode donation, I'll thank you by name in the next episode that I produce after you've signed up, and you will have access to special bonus episodes via Patreon that are available only to the Patreon supporters of this show and which are available nowhere else. In addition, I've recently added a new benefit for those who are Patreon supporters of this show, and that is a private Facebook group. I've called it, I think, uh, Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors is the name of the group. And if you're a supporter of this show at a dollar or more per episode, you are very welcome to join if you're so inclined. I will put the link to it in today's show notes, and if you just follow that link and ask to join, once I check and make sure that you are, in fact, a Patreon supporter of this show, I will be happy to let you in. And I'm hoping to make that into kind of a cool little interactive community with some additional behind-the-scenes stuff and information about the show and what I'm up to. Things beyond what I already share on, you know, regular open social media, that sort of thing. And I'm hoping we can create a nice little interactive community there. And as always, I'm a believer in spontaneous order that emerges when people interact with each other on a voluntary basis. By the way, if you want in on the group and you're a Patreon supporter of this show, when you put in your little whatever it is, ask to join or apply to join or whatever it's called that you click on there, if your Facebook name and your handle that you go by on Patreon that I would see you as a donor under, if those are not the same, please send me a message on Facebook letting me know, hey, my name on Patreon is blah, blah, blah. And I'll, of course, check that. And, and once I have verified that, then I'll be happy to let you in. So anyway, I'm hoping that will be another good little benefit for those of you who are kind enough to help out the show financially, um, something in addition to the bonus episodes that, of course, you know, I only do every every month or two because I'm so busy all the time. And I try to make those 
equivalent quality to a regular episode, and I hope you all enjoy those, but I understand that I can't put them out as often as I would like to. And so I'm hoping this private Facebook group will will provide some level of value to you, something else of benefit besides just the bonus episodes, you know, something that's there kind of on a regular basis. Anyway, I also have some thank yous for excellent individuals who have gotten me some stuff off the official Dangerous History Podcast Amazon wishlist, to which I will also link in the show notes for this episode. It's got a variety of stuff, a lot of its books that I'm interested in reading in relation to material for the show. It also has things like some electronics and audio equipment and things like that to help me continue to upgrade the show on an ongoing basis, as I have done since I started it. And if you get me something off that wish list, once I, once I receive it, the next episode I make, I will thank you by name as I'm about to for these uh, two excellent individuals who already got me some stuff off there. And so big thank yous to Leonard for ordering me the book, which looks really good and interesting. The Civil War Guerrilla, obviously of relevance to my eventual upcoming Civil War series. And also to Kent for also ordered me something relevant to the Civil War. I, I get the hint, guys. I get the hint that you're trying to nudge me towards that series. And it is in the works. It's going to be a mountain of work on my part in terms of research and putting together notes and all that stuff. So anyway, these are two books that I think will help me significantly. Oh, I forgot to mention the book that Kent got me. It is Stonewall in the Valley. It is a whole big book just about Stonewall Jackson's Shenandoah Valley campaign, which I've always found to be one of the more fascinating military campaigns of the American Civil War. And it's one of those campaigns that really, more than any other, established the legend of Stonewall Jackson as this mad scientist military genius who pulled off seeming miracles against much larger forces. So anyway, those two books will both be very helpful in me towards putting together that series, and they both look like they'll be very excellent reads. I'm looking forward to digging into them. A few more announcements. One is that the Dangerous History Podcast is now available on Google Play Music, So if you're somebody who prefers to consume your podcast that way, you can now find this show there as well. And one last announcement is regarding the upcoming Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest, which is mplfest.org. Again, link in the show notes. And it is in Michigan last weekend in August. And I'm going to let Lou from Freedom Fiends tell you more about it. Are you sick and tired of peaceful people being banned from so-called liberty events? How about Liberty Festivals that are more regulated than a government housing area? Now you can do something about it. The Michigan Peace and Liberty Coalition is proud to announce the 4th Annual Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest. It will be held Friday, August 26th through Monday the 29th at the Circle Pine Center in Delton, Michigan, just outside of Kalamazoo. There will be canoeing, kayaking, hiking, fishing, swimming, presentations, discussions, and bacon. Lots of bacon... This event is both adult and family-friendly, and best of all, no overbearing central planners. There will be free Freedom Fiends and Bipcop merch while supplies last. And don't forget the longer leashes for the Bow Wows and Woof Woofs. Round up your friends and family members and get them registered today at mplfest.org. That's Mike, Papa, Lima, Fest.org. Now, I'm going to be there Friday afternoon through, I think, Sunday morning, and I'm going to be speaking there on Saturday the 27th. So I hope, if you're able to make it, that you'll consider going as well. I'm looking forward to it, and I'm looking forward to 
potentially meeting some of you all listening. Hopefully some of you in the Midwest, if Porkfest was too out of the way for you to make it, maybe you could make it to this instead. And I think it'll be a really good time. I'm looking forward to it. All right, on to the Porcelain Club. This is what author C. Wright Mills, author of the excellent book, The Power Elite, had to say about clubs like the Porcelain Club and how they fit into his understanding of the American power elite in the mid-20th century when he was writing. Quote, Harvard or Yale or Princeton is not enough. It is the really exclusive prep school that counts, for that determines which of the two Harvards one attends. The clubs and cliques of college are usually composed of carryovers of association and name made in the lower levels at the proper schools. One's friends at Harvard are friends made at prep school. That is why, in the upper social classes, it does not by itself mean much merely to have a degree from an Ivy League college. That is assumed. The point is not Harvard, but which Harvard? By Harvard, one means Porcelain, Fly, or A.D. By Yale, one means Zeta Psi, or Fence, or Delta Kappa Epsilon. By Princeton, Cottage, Tiger, Cap and Gown, or Ivy. It is the prestige of a properly certified secondary education followed by a proper club in a proper Ivy League college that is the standard admission ticket to the world of urban clubs and parties in any major city of the nation. To the prestige of the voice and manner constructed in such schools, local loyalties bow, for that experience is a major clue to the nationwide upper class that is homogenous and self-conscious, end quote. So obviously the Porcelain Club is certainly one of the most important of those elite finals clubs, uh, final clubs at the Ivy League universities. It's not enough that you just go to an Ivy League university. Typically to really be in with the power elite, you got to be a member of one of the fancy clubs. Now, if you look at the name of the club, Porcelain, while it's spelled the same, the root pork, P-O-R-C, in the Porcelian Club, which is pronounced with a soft S in that case, is a very different word root from the P-O-R-C, pronounced with a hard C, in, say, Porkfest, which I attended back in the, in the middle of the summer. They're spelled the same, P-O-R-C, but Porkfest, of course, is named for its mascot, which is the porcupine, the animal that does not aggress against others, but which is quite willing and able to protect itself. Whereas the Porcelain Club with the soft C, the name of this Harvard club, it has to do with, instead of porcupines, it has to do with the same root as pork. It is referring to pigs, hogs, swine, whatever you want to call it. And the club is sometimes referred to simply as the pork, or PC for short. This is the story of the club's origins, according to an article in the Harvard Crimson Magazine, published all the way back on February 23rd, 1887, at which time this club was already almost a century old. Quote, The society was established in 1791. It occupies rooms on Harvard Street and owns a library of some 7,000 volumes. Its members are taken from the senior, junior, and sophomore classes from... Sorry, uh, about eight from each class. The origin of its name is popularly supposed to be as follows. In the year 1791, a student brought a pig into his room in Hollis. 
In those days, the window seats were merely long boxes with lids, used to store articles in. Said student, having an antipathy to the proctor who roomed beneath, was accustomed to squeeze Piggy's ears and make him squeal whenever said proctor was engaged in the study of the classics. The result would be a rush by the proctor for the student's rooms, where the student was to be found studying, peacefully seated on his window seat. Piggy, in the meantime, had been deposited beneath and no sound disturbed the tranquility of the scene. On the departure of the hated proctor, a broad grin would spread over the countenance of the Joker, and in a little while, the scene would be repeated with variations. But when it was rumored that his room was to be searched by the faculty, the Joker determined to cheat them out of their prey. So he invited some of his classmates to the room, and the pig being cooked, all present partook of a goodly feast. They enjoyed their midnight meal so much that they... that they had determined then and there to form a club and have such entertainments periodically. In order to render the historical origin of the club, and also to give it a classic touch, they decided to call it the Porcillion from Latin Porcus. In 1831, the society bearing the name of Order of the Knights of the Square Table was joined to the Porcillion as the objects and interests of the two societies were identical. End quote. The club has an Epicurean motto, Dum Vivimus Vivamus, which translates as, While we live, let us live. It's a very small, exclusive club. Supposedly, again, there are fewer than 10 people from each class at Harvard that are invited to join. And of course, like Skull and Bones, it is by invitation only. According to a legend that, as far as I can tell, is not entirely substantiated, if a member of the pork fails to earn his first million dollars by the age of 40, the club will just give him a million dollars. Some sources say that the myth is they'll be given a million dollars if they haven't earned it by age 30, and I for one wonder if this has been, or perhaps should be, adjusted for inflation, because after all, let's face it, a million bucks back in 1900 was real money, (laughs) but thanks to a century plus of constant inflation... Well, certainly, if you want to give me a million dollars, if you want to sign up to support me on Patreon at a million bucks an episode, I will not turn you down. <laughs> but um, certainly a million bucks isn't what it used to be a hundred years ago, thanks to a century of rampant inflation. Thank you, Federal Reserve. Probably a majority of members, I would guess, come from families who already have net worths well over a million dollars. So... Again, this may need to be adjusted for inflation, guys. Anyone uh, who's a kind of a leader of the Porcelain Club listening, if this is still set at a million bucks, I mean, you guys really need to up, you know, make it make it 10 million or something at least. The clubhouse of the Porcelain Club is called the Old Barn. It is right across the street from Harvard Yard. And in fact, the club in 1901 built a fancy gate to get into Harvard Yard from that direction, from, you know, right across the street from their house that features a sculpture of a pig's head. This gate, I think, is sometimes referred to as the Porcillion Gate and sometimes referred to as the McKean Gate, named after Reverend Joseph McKean, who is credited as being the club's founder. And I think McKean may have been the student in the story who actually had the pig. Because in an 1891 article from the Cambridge Chronicle, it says, quote, It is to Mr. McKean that the club owes not only its pig, but its principles. End quote. 
by the way, in the show notes for this episode, I've posted a picture of a painting, which is a 1919 painting entitled The Steward, Lewis of the Porcillion, which is a portrait of porcelain steward George Washington Lewis by a painter named Joseph DeCamp. And this hangs in the old barn. I think it might hang in kind of the main sort of common room, if I'm not mistaken. Now, this steward, George Washington Lewis, who was he? Well, there actually was an obituary for him in Time magazine in 1929 that reads as follows, quote, George Washington Lewis of Cambridge, Mass., for over 45 years, the esteemed Negro steward of the Porcellian Club at Harvard College in Cambridge, Mass. Ancient and most esoteric of Harvard clubs is Porcellian, founded in 1791. An oil portrait of Stuart Lewis hangs in the clubhouse. Stuart Lewis had ten Porcellian pallbearers, end quote. A travel book published in 1870, written by an author named W. Fraser Ray, and entitled Westward by Rail, The New Route to the East, says the following about the pork, quote, A notice of Harvard would be as incomplete without a reference to the Porcelain Club as a notice of Oxford or Cambridge would be in which the Union Debating Society held no place. This, and the Hasty Pudding Club, an organization for performing amateur theatricals, are the two lions of Harvard. The Porcelain Club is hardly a place of resort for those who cultivate the intellect at the, expenses, at the expense of the body. The list of active members is small, owing in part to the largeness of the annual subscription. The great desire of every student is to become a member of it. The doings of the club are shrouded in secrecy. All that can be said by a stranger who has been privileged to step behind the scenes is that the mysteries are rites, which can be practiced without much labor, and yield a pleasure which is fraught with no unpleasant consequences. End quote. That is cryptic as hell, and can only imagine what the heck he's talking about at the end of that passage. A 1940 Time magazine article described the members of the club and the club itself in the following terms, quote, A porcelain wears a small gold pig on his watch chain, a long tweed jacket, tight flannel pants, and a short haircut generally contents himself with a gentleman's three C's and a D in his studies. Most inviolable tradition? Once a porcelain, always a porcelain. Porkies keep up their porky friendships all their lives, go back religiously to the annual porky banquet at which new members are initiated. When a porky marries, fellow porkies always gather around him after the ceremony and sing the club song. From the pork's club rooms, non-porcillians are religiously excluded. In the past 20 years, only five men have been ex accepted from this rule. The Prince of Wales, Al Smith, Herbert Hoover... Undersecretary of the Treasury Roswell McGill and one-time budget director Lou Douglas, who were wined and dined in the club, end quote. By the way, later Dwight Eisenhower was also allowed into the club as a visitor, I believe while he was president, but I've not found mention of any outsiders being allowed in past the, kind of the main lobby area on the ground floor since Ike. Also, by the way, when Ike asked to come back a second time to the club, which may have been when he was done being president, I'm not sure, the club turned him down and said no. 
And by the way, females are not allowed inside the building at all, not even in the kind of common area lobby main room place where non-members actually can't come in. A 1966 Harvard Crimson article about the finals clubs called the Porcelian, quote, by far the oldest, the most exclusive, and the most secretive of the final clubs, end quote, and gives a few rare glimpses into some of its practices like this, quote, while inside the club, Located above J. August, the members address each other as brother this and brother that, and refrain religiously from discussing politics. They are instructed to look outside only through a mirror above the J. August sign, placed in such a way that a club member may view the pedestrian life on mass live without, raising, without rising from his oversuffered seat. This same article, by the way, also says the following about some of the practices of the club. Quote, the Porcelian is reputed to hold the most elegant punches, the weekend outings to which would-be members are invited for inspection. With more local graduates to choose from, the Porcelian is partial to old Boston families, the club can always find a wealthy alumnus who will lend his palatial residence and spacious lawns to the club for a raucous afternoon of football and drinking, usually carried on simultaneously. Skeet shooting bowls or other forms of leisurely recreation are sometimes provided for the less energetic. Following each punch, the members meet at the club to rate each punchee. A punchee's rating determines whether he will be invited to the next outing. At the Porcelian's final dinner, the last function of the punching season for all the clubs, each prospective member is required to tell one dirty joke, and his success in amusing the members often determines his fate at election time. New members are elected in December and initiated in February when they are filled full of alcohol, led blindfolded through the Porcelian Clubhouse, and finally unveiled before a large assemblage of exultant graduate members, end quote. So just a few little glimpses, little bits and pieces there of what these people do, how they choose their members, some of their practices. Nothing, at least that's come out, that's as outlandish as some of Skull and Bones practices, you know, like, let's all get naked and put an open coffin in the middle of the room and take turns getting into the coffin and telling the rest of the club all of our sexual secrets and so on, which, by the way, is something we know Skull and Bones does do. Um, nothing of what we know about the Porcelian Club is as outlandish as some of the things we know about Skull and Bones. But on the other hand, the possibility exists that there's some really bizarre shit in there that we just don't know about, that maybe they're just better at keeping things under wraps than Skull and Bones. There have been a lot of famous members of the club over the last 200 plus years, so I'll just mention a few. The Pork membership roster through history includes Oliver Wendell Holmes, both junior and senior. Senior, by the way, was a writer and professor. Junior was, of course, a Supreme Court justice. Another Porky, Supreme Court Justice Joseph Story, also, William Henry Fitzhugh Lee, who is the son of Robert E. Lee and who I think attended Harvard and was in the Porcelian Club just a few years before the outbreak of the Civil War. Also included in the membership of the club, abolitionist Wendell Phillips, as well as Edward Everett, who, if you don't know, had quite a career in the 19th century, included being president of Harvard, secretary of state, a congressman, a senator, and a governor of Massachusetts, all this on his resume. 
obviously a very plugged in guy in the world of the Massachusetts elite. Another Porcelian alumnus, Paul Nitza, who, if you don't know, was the main author of the infamous Cold War document NSC-68, which I might do an episode relating to that at some point in the future. It's a very interesting document. Paul Nitza was also later Secretary of the Navy and Deputy Secretary of Defense. Another Porcelian alumnus, Robert Gould Shaw, which might ring a bell with you, and if you can't quite recall who he is, he was played by Matthew Broderick in the movie Glory. Robert Gould Shaw was the commander of the 54th Massachusetts Regiment, the famous black regiment in the Civil War. Another member of the Porcelian Club, Charles Sumner, who was the senator, probably most famous to us today for getting the crap beat out of him by Congressman Preston Brooks in the Capitol building. And of course, again, the famous Winklevoss twins were members as well. Some very interesting members of the Porcelian Club are three of the most important and influential members of what I've referred to as the large policy clique in the American power elite in the late 19th and early 20th century. This large policy clique was a small group of elite Americans, mostly blue-blooded wasps from the Northeast, who turned the United States government away from its more traditional, in relative terms at least, less interventionist foreign policy, and putting it on the path to becoming Team America World Police, a global empire, etc. All this happened over the course of the 1890s through kind of the early 19-teens. And I talked about this quite a bit way, way back in episode six of the Dangerous History podcast, who these people were, what their ideas were, and how they changed American foreign policy away from one that was more about avoiding wars in distant corners of the world uh, towards one that was hyper-interventionist and in practice resembled a lot more the policies of something like the British Empire. And anyway, three of the most important and influential members of this large policy clique were all Porcelian men. One was Henry Cabot Lodge, the longtime senator from Massachusetts and one of the most influential voices at the time pushing for America to become more imperialist. Another was Lodge's very close buddy, Theodore Roosevelt. Roosevelt, by the way, when he was at Harvard, was the club's librarian in his senior year and supposedly recruited later on in life some of the Rough Riders that came from the college boy polo playing background were members of the Porcelian Club. The story on the Rough Riders, of course, is they were a mixture of like frontier cowboy types and then some rich polo playing blue blood types. So, yeah, at least some of the Rough Riders were Porcelian guys. And then a third member, not quite as famous as the other two, but still important, Brooks Adams of the Adams family, of course, one of the top Boston Brahmin families going back. And Brooks Adams was an important author and historian amongst the large policy clique. He was the guy writing about how the American race, which he considered to be Anglo-Saxon, needed to keep its mojo by getting into periodic wars and being more aggressive abroad. He wrote a book that was influential among these circles called, I believe, The Law of Civilization and Decay, in which he said that if the American Anglo-Saxon race didn't start getting more aggressive, it would kind of lose its mojo. Theodore Roosevelt Jr., by the way, was also in the pork years later as well. Now, our other president, Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, came from a different wing of 
the Roosevelt family. The Roosevelt family split way back in colonial times into kind of two separate branches. And the branch that Teddy Roosevelt came from, sometimes referred to as the Oyster Bay or Long Island Roosevelt's, lived and worked and so on more in kind of Long Island and New York City area. And they were plugged into kind of some different factions of the power elite than the Franklin Roosevelt branch of the family, which are oftentimes called the Hyde Park Roosevelt's. The Hyde Park Roosevelt's were in more upstate New York, Hudson Valley area. And um, as a result of these kind of two branches of the family splitting way back in the colonial era, they each developed different connections into the American power elite. So, for example, in the big Morgan versus Rockefeller contest that was going on in American politics and in the American economy in the late 19th and early 20th century, the Teddy Roosevelt branch of the family tended to be more sympathetic and more allied with the Morgans, and the Franklin Roosevelt was more allied to the Rockefeller group and, and the Rockefeller's allies, like the Harriman family. The, the Franklin Roosevelt family was very close to the Harrimans. Well, Franklin Roosevelt, coming from this kind of different branch of the family, plugged into different parts of the power elite, he was not invited to join the Porcelian Club, and he supposedly said that it was one of his life's biggest disappointments. He was, however, in the also very elite, almost as fancy and so on and snobby as the Porcelian Club, um, another Harvard final club known as the Fly Club. So there you go. By the way, John and Robert Kennedy both attended Harvard, and both were in another elite final club that is, in some ways, somewhat more progressive, known as the Spee Club. And the Spee Club, for example, was ahead of the other final clubs at Harvard on allowing different races and uh, even females into their club. So I don't necessarily think that the members of the Porcelian Club are doing human sacrifice rituals and drinking blood behind closed doors and plotting how to take over the world that their families already have taken over anyway. I don't necessarily think there's anything that cartoonish going on. But on the other hand, these clubs and, and other clubs like them and the clubs that people join after school, the, the kind of private social clubs in the big cities of America, they often don't get any sort of scrutiny at all. And I think there's legit kind of historical and sociological reasons to at least look into these things and say, okay, you know, what's really going on here? And how does this affect what the power elite in the country does and the connections that are made and the different factions that form? Because these things do matter. These sorts of clubs oftentimes create lifelong associations and bonds and so on that later come into play in the political and corporate worlds. There's a famous line spoken by Kevin Spacey's character in the excellent movie The Usual Suspects, which is something along the lines of, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. I think that might be it exactly, if not, it's very close. And perhaps this may apply to the Porcelian Club, about which we know so little. I first noticed the Porcelian Club when I came across a reference to it in a book that said that it was more powerful and important than Skull and Bones, that it was like the ultimate granddaddy, grand dragon of um, American elite Ivy League University private clubs. Unfortunately, I can't recall where the hell I read that. It was something many years ago I came across it. It made enough of an impression that I, huh, Porcelian Club, I've never even heard of that. I'm going to look into that a little bit more. 
But now in preparation for this episode, I wanted to dig that book up so that I could, you know, share the reference and say, yeah, this, this author over here at least says this. And I went digging through my library at home and my library at my office at work, and I just couldn't find it. And I just don't know where it was I came across that. I looked at some books that I thought might be where I came across that reference, and no luck. So I wish that I could give you some sort of source behind the theory that the Porcelain Club might be the granddaddy of them all. It certainly is the oldest. And at least some people say subjectively it's the most respected of these sorts of clubs. But, you know, whether there actually is some sort of kind of power hierarchy amongst these clubs, so far, I can't say. And when it comes to just kind of strangeness and the esoteric occultishness about it, it's possible, possible, that the Porcelain Club is behind closed doors as strange and occultish as Skull and Bones, but is just better at secrecy. That's a possibility. They're as weird, but they're just quieter about it. Or the possibility exists that they're not as strange, that they have some, you know, goofy little rituals and things they do, but it's nothing as outlandish as Skull and Bones. But regardless, it's certainly the Porcelain Club in the same category as things like Skull and Bones when you look at it in terms of the function it performs for the power elite, even if it's not as rife with weird, bizarre rituals and so on. It's obviously very important within that sort of world. It's a final club at a top Ivy League university. It's actually the oldest college in America. The Puritans founded Harvard just a few years after they arrived in Massachusetts. It's at least somewhat secretive. It has a significant roster of elite people on its alumni list, though from what I can tell, um, one thing you don't see as much of relative to Skull and Bones you find not nearly as much in the way of CIA and intelligence people as you do Skull and Bones. Their alumni roster is like just rife with people who later went on to run the OSS and CIA. And it may be that Skull and Bones performs more of that function, and maybe why it's so interested in these weird occult rituals is because it's the club that's more geared towards recruiting people to run the CIA, and uh, Porcelian maybe is more geared towards producing people who are kind of more you know, above board Supreme Court justices and that sort of thing that are still part of the power elite, but not in kind of the covert ops realm. And it's certainly possible, though I can't say for sure, that the pork is as important or perhaps even more so than Skull and Bones. As of now, given given what I've been able to find out, which is only little bits and pieces here and there, I, I simply can't say. I can't make a call that one is more powerful or important than the other. But if nothing else, the Porcelain Club is another very intriguing example of a power elite social institution, very old by American standards at 200 plus years old, and something that perhaps deserves a bit more scrutiny than it's had so far. By the way, just by way of wrapping things up, according to a 1929 Time magazine article, the favorite drink of the club is, get this, a mixture of gin and beer. Now, with that in mind, I've just got to say, do we really want people from this organization that want to drink that in charge of anything important in the power elite world? Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. 
please check out the website, profcj.org. That's profcj.org. There you can find show notes for all the episodes, links, and other information. You can also email subscribe to the website by putting in your email in the little subscribe box off to the side there. And if you do that, you'll get an email notification every time something new is posted at the website. I promise you won't get any spam or anything uh, from me if you sign up there. You'll just get an announcement every time something new is posted on the website, which most of the time means a new episode, but occasionally is another sort of announcement or what have you. Please feel free to contact me with questions, comments, or other things. The email address is profcj at profcj.org. That's profcj at profcj.org. You can also connect with the show and follow it on social media, like us on Facebook, follow on Twitter, and you can find the show in podcast venues such as iTunes and Stitcher. You can subscribe there. Uh, By subscribing in iTunes, you'll help the show rise in the iTunes charts, and of course that will help grow the show's audience. If you like this show and want to see it continue to keep going and to grow and to improve, there are a lot of ways you can help support it. One is simply to spread the word about the Dangerous History Podcast to anyone you think might appreciate it. You can also help spread the word by leaving ratings and reviews in podcast venues like iTunes and Stitcher. And of course, we very much need and appreciate financial support. You can go to profcj.org donate to see a whole bunch of different ways that you would help the show out financially. One, of course, is patreon.com profcj, where if you pledge to help out the show with a donation of at least $1 per episode, Remember, not only will I thank you by name in the next episode that I make, but you'll also have access to bonus episodes that I put there periodically that are available nowhere else. You can also make one-time or recurring donations via PayPal at profcj.org donate, and I have a Bitcoin address if you want to donate that way. And of course, a final way you can help out the show financially is when you do your Amazon shopping, go to Amazon through any of my affiliate Amazon links on my website. And if you do that, The Dangerous History Podcast will get a small cut, a little commission, from anything you purchase at no additional cost to you. Thanks again for listening. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.